Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Psalm 53, and I want you to hold your place here and turn over to Romans chapter number 3. So we go to Psalm 53, Romans chapter 3, we'll get there directly. As we read through this psalm just a moment ago, you perhaps noticed uh, that Psalm 53 is almost a carbon copy of Psalm 14. And of course, that first verse, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Uh, they are, or corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. It's almost verbatim, as you find in the 14th Psalm, and again in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. So here you have the Lord, by divine inspiration, preserved for us, not just saying something once, but saying it twice, and yea, even a third time. Uh, we must be careful in our prayers and in our preaching not to be full of vain repetition. But not all repetition in is of itself a bad thing. In fact, it would, be early rem it would be remiss of us not remember our early training from when we were in elementary school and stuff where we were told that repetition is the key to learning. I uh, recount sometimes to my children, we're going through the school, we're talking about multiplication tables. You know, there were very few things that I was going to have to learn in life, but my teacher set full heart, her heart, boy, I'm going to teach you these multiplication tables. We set them every day twice. We would stand in class, and if you misbehaved, you got the joyous privilege of going home writing multiplication tables. So I want to know those, and how did that happen? Well, it was through repetition. And here in this particular psalm, you have something that God would use up his three uh, times would use his holy pages to convey to humanity. Now, I would also remind you as we're studying that Psalm 52, 53, 54, and 55 really are, are highlighted. There's something of a subsection here in the second book of Psalms. And in these particular four pictures or Psalms, they give us a picture of when faithful are opposed and persecuted by evil people. Now, as we look forward, uh, prophetically, etc., particularly with the nation of Israel, uh, it is a terrible thing to try to understand the plan of God aside from seeing how He's going to work in that future redeemed Israel that will one day come. Here in this particular passage you have with 52, 54, and 55, you have a picture a little bit of the sense of the evil one that will oppose himself against God and be lifted up against all that is God. And yet by application we see evil often on the very cusp of those in this particular day and hour that would seek to please God being persecuted by evildoers. Now I would note in chronology's sake that Psalm 14 seems to have been penned first and then Psalm 53 later, perhaps in the same life of King David. One commentator noted this and I think it's well worth uh, having our ears to hear. He said, David after a long life found men no better than they were in his youth. It's a wonderful consideration. When he was a young man, I don't know that he was 14 when he wrote the 14th Psalm, but as a young man, he looked at the world and he said, it's wicked. They've all turned aside. Those were the Psalms that the God had moved upon his heart. Now here's an older man in the 53rd Psalm, and yet he's writing nearly the same thing by inspiration. I think the older we get in our advanced age, the more we'll find the teaching of how foolish and godless society really is. 
And the great truth that is conveyed there in verse number 6, the hope of the saint is only in God. And how much truer is that from our experience in our age than it is with our youth? I think much could be said of this line. Let me give you just a distinction of some of the things that would identify, because there's two really that I would hone in on, but there's several distinctions between the 14th Psalm and the 53rd Psalm, and I didn't have you turn to the 14th Psalm this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can pin these. But there's a couple of distinctions that are given, particularly in verse number 1. In verse number 1, you'll find out that the psalmist pins by inspiration that they have abominable iniquities abominable iniquities. And I believe in the 14th Psalm it talks about abominable works. In verse number 3, you'll find in verse number 3 it talks about them having gone back. Gone back in verse in uh, Psalm 14 in the same verse, you'll find that they're gone aside. They've deviated from the path. Uh, in the 5th verse, in the 5th verse it talks about they were in great fear. Uh, they were in great fear. Uh, in the 14th Psalm it talks about there was no fear. Uh, verse number 6, uh, particularly Psalm 14 and verse 6, uh, really Psalm 14 has seven verses, seven verses, where Psalm 53 only has six, and the verse that is quote-unquote missing from the 53rd Psalm is the sixth verse of Psalm 14. I'm just doing this to whet your, whet your appetite, if you will, for your study. Perhaps to me the most glowing identity distinction between these is both of these psalms contain a reference of the name of God seven times. But in the 53rd psalm, there's no mention of Jehovah God. In the 14th psalm, still seven references to the Godhead. Five of them are the word God. Three of them, or yes, four of them are the reference of God. Three of them are referenced by the word L-O-R-D, Jehovah. When you get to the 53rd psalm, there's no mention to Jehovah God at all referenced. That particularly is an interesting distinction between these. I would note here in the 53rd Psalm, no distinction at all of the Jehovah God, the personal God, the God that interacted in the affairs of man, that condescended to a human state and was born of a virgin. Uh, Lord, Jehovah, Jesus, this is his name, uh, Emmanuel. All the references in the 53rd Psalm are Elohim. God. Now I would note something with this. The first name that you find of God in all of the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 in the scripture records, you might remember. In the beginning, God. When you think about the name Elohim, when you think of the name God, it is in fact the Creator's name. It is in fact the name associated with his great magnanimous action and that was the creation of all the world in six literal 24-hour periods. It is the cry of the fool. Sometimes they are educated and sometimes they are prosperous and sometimes they are intellectual that cry out, there is no God. And by reference of that distinction, they're referring to the fact that there was no creator God at all. And if we deny the fact of a creator God, we have denied the fact that there was the inspiration of his word that you and I hold. 
to deny that there is no God, there is no creator, and then there is no revelation whatsoever. And that will allow the humanists, the atheists, to chalk up all the, the existence of the scriptures into nothing more than folklore and myth. Now listen to these passages. I think of 1 John chapter 2. And speaking about the denying of Jesus Christ and the denying of God, listen to 1 John 2 and verse 22. This is the spirit of Antichrist. He that denieth the Father and the Son. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, speaking of the son of perdition that will come, he opposeth himself and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Daniel chapter 11, given a picture of this evil man that shall come in the 11th chapter in 36, 37. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above all that is called God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. And this prophetic sense in the psalm really is, in a great sense, a prophetic book. There is a declaration against God and if you will, an exaltation of evil in the very place where God should be. And then you come down to verse number 6 and you have a little bit of the prayer of the righteous, this pious, godly remnant that suffer. The scripture says in verse number 5 that these wicked will eat them, rather verse number 4, eat them as they eat bread. Yet God will act, judgment will come. And the psalmist ends with this great meditative prayer that salvation, deliverance would once come here against these ungodly, unrighteous persecutors. This is the essence of the psalm. I want to take an opportunity this morning and just give you seven thoughts about sin. Really, I want to give you a bonus one-eighth too, but that's about the believer. But let me give you seven things regarding sin and then I'll give you this bonus one about uh, sin and how it relates to humanity and what it does and where it comes from and how it can be truly described. Notice, if you will, in the 53rd Psalm, the first of these is this. There is the fact of sin. There is the fact of sin. Notice <clears throat> the second verse. The scripture says, God looked where? down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. And we won't read all of the verse, but verse number three, every one of them is what? Gone back. I would note the description there. There is a fact of sin, for it is God that has looked down upon humanity. He that had created all that exists. The great reality, consider when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were as near perfect, and I'm talking in their, their physical essence, as could ever be. You know, we live in a day and age today, so many thousands of years from that perfect creation, man has continued. Our genetic DNA is lessened than it was in the time of Adam. Sickness abounds. People often confuse the sickness that exists today and think that all of it's diabolical and all of it's wicked. Some of the sicknesses that exist today is a direct result of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. But Adam was made, if you will, Genesis chapter 3, in the very image of God. It was perfect. Perfect head of hair, 
perfect eyesight, perfect teeth, perfect hearing. Eve couldn't blame anything on that, you know. Perfect. You look down through the time of 6,000 years subsequent this race of Adam's descendants. You have genetic deformities that exist. Adam had no genetic deformities. Perfect. Yet when God looked down upon this sole race, Adam's race, God looked down upon them and said that they are all full of sin. You know, our, we don't see that in our society the same way. When we look at our society, we see an element of sin. Sometimes we fail to be able to see the own sin in our life and though we may be fully acquainted with the Word of God. Sometimes we close our eyes to society. Sometimes, like our grandmother Eve back in the Garden of Eden, we have a tendency to cry aloud, not my fault. This isn't my sin. It's not my cause. Blame someone else for it. But when God in His holiness looks down upon humanity, He clearly and justly decries Mankind, humanity, the race of Adam is under sin. That is, from divine decree, a fact of sin. Notice the second thing in the 53rd Psalm here. Not only do you have the fact of sin, but you've got the fault of sin. The fault of sin. Notice from verse number 1, corrupt are they. I don't particularly love that word. Corrupt can mean a number of things in the scriptures. I think of Ephesians chapter 4. He talks about your speech. And he talks about corrupt speech in 1 Corinthians as well. Um, that word corrupt, it can be void of any good. In another sense, when you look at corrupt, you can think of that which is decaying. I suppose the latter is a better understanding of the word corrupt here that is given verse number 1. Because humanity is under the curse of sin, and that is the fact that God has established... He that is perfect and holy has declared that all men are unjust. All of them are wicked. But whose fault is it? They're corrupt. Dying daily. Where did this corruption come from? Note, if you will, a second verse or a second word in this verse. He says, they have done abominable, what's the word? Iniquity. It's an interesting word. In Psalms, particularly in the 51st Psalm, you have three identifying marks of, of sin, if you will, in a broad sense. The word sin is there, the word iniquity is there, and the word transgressions are there. When you think of iniquity, because that's in the text, something's very important. It's conveyed in the 139th Psalm that we were born in iniquity. So if you want to see how God looks at the human race, look how he sees it on their offspring. Now, my wife and I have been blessed to go through a number of pregnancies, and we see these young children, and we love them, and they're cute. But you know what God said about them? They were conceived in iniquity. They were cursed before they were ever born. Why? That almost in our mind could seem a bit unjust. We would say, what did this child do? Well... Romans chapter 8 would say that God is completely just in declaring even these brand new sweet little babies sinners. Why? If for no other reason they were born to sinners. And like produces, come on, I know it's rainy. Like produces, what's that mean? That means if you've got two apples and they could conceive and give birth, 
they are not going to give birth to an orange. It's not going to happen. If you take two dogs and they were to give birth, if you will, to little kitty cats, you know what you should do? You call ABC 27, you will be a wealthy person. Or you're seeing things. That's the reality of it. Like bears like. So the best that I could ever hope for in my children is that they would be less of a sinner in their actions than I am. But the reality is because they are mine, I'd really love to blame it on my wife. They're sinners. Why? They share a common lineage. But another reason that God is just in calling them all sinners, not only a common lineage, but keep in mind this, it won't take long and they'll expose to you what they really like to do with their life. And do you know what descendants of Adam's race like to do? They like to sin. It won't be long down the the path that little child and you'll watch them sin. Why is it you never have to teach that little child to tell the truth? What do you have to do? Or rather, you don't have to teach them to lie. What do you have to do? Teach them to tell the truth. Iniquity. Abominable iniquity. There's a continuation here. They are doing evil. They are turned aside. In verse number 4, he speaks about the continuation of this evil unabated. No interaction on the behalf of God. The scripture says that they'll go on in such ungodliness that they'll do evil even while they do those necessities of life. In verse number 4, they eat bread. That's what he's talking about here. Who eat up my people as they eat bread. So debaucherous will they be if not redeemed by the blood of Christ that they will spire in grand iniquity and call that iniquity good. Notice the third thing, if you will, there's a fountain of sin. This tries to get at the source of it. (coughs) Why are they bad? Why are they evil? Well, ultimately, it's found in verse number one. They have proclaimed in their heart, there is no God. They have denied God. This is interesting, isn't it? This was written under divine inspiration thousands of years ago. And we're going to see how sinful our society has become. I doubt at the time that this was written, and I mean in the original, written by, penned by David, I doubt there was anything of a, the, uh, anything of a theoretical a- atheist. I doubt there really was. Why? Because they were polytheistic. Everybody had a God. In fact, most everybody except for the Jews had many gods. The ancient man... And his knowledge and wisdom, and by the way, he wasn't a Neanderthal. To hold to the essence that the ancient man was a Neanderthal, and you, you want to talk about being lifted up in hubris. We got this idea today that society has evolved to such a high plane that we know how to do things today that they didn't have to do in the ancients of days. I don't think that's really factual. When you look at some of the ancients, and this would, pre- this would come after David, but you, you think of some of the great wonders of the old world. We've lost much of that history to time. So they refer to it as the Dark Ages from 500 to approximately 1500 A.D. 
aqueducts that delivered water from a present source and carried it hundreds of miles. Roads that were built and can still be used to some degree today. It's amazing consideration. Great architectural marvels. The Colosseum still amazes me. They could flood it. They could flood the basin of the Colosseum and reenact naval battles with real ships and then drain it and take the ships out. Marvels. Wonders not only in their agricultural and art, uh, uh, architectural design, but also in the craft of war. Some of the most devastating of weapons, loss, loss to the mind of history. But one thing that none of them debated at all was if there was an existence of a God. There were no theoretical atheists when David wrote this. I think that's a whole, if you want to speak of evolution, <laughs> that's a grander evolution in that sense. They all had their gods. Every pagan society had gods. They didn't argue about the fact if, if there was a god, they argued about the fact of who that god was. That's why in the scriptures, it takes him back to Elohim, the creator God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Yet today we live in a society where you really have two types of atheists that exist. You've got, if you will, a practical atheist. Those have always existed. They're a very common form. And then you've got a theoretical atheist. The theoretical atheist says in his mind, there is no God. I have evolved to a level of science where I now am going to trust the science if I agree with it on the days that I agree with it and if it aligns to what I think it aligns to. We'll leave that go for another day. Theoretical atheist. Decide in their own mind who God is, what God wants, and ultimately the answer to the theoretical atheist is that they themselves are in fact God. And you got a practical atheist. Those have always existed. The practical atheist can see the marvel of creation that from the beginning till now shows forth the power and wonder of the Almighty God and says, well, I think there probably is a God, but I'm not going to bother myself with any obedience to it. Many a Christian could be accused at times of being a practical atheist. We speak in the fact that there's a God and He has saved us and He has loved us. Well, what about all the commands He has placed upon our lives? Well, I'm not going to adhere to those. That's practical atheism in one sense. It's a fountain of sin. When we examine the natural world, just, just a cursory examination in Romans chapter 1 and 28 and verses 32 and reject the marvel of who God is and His power and His testimony and His wonders in which He has said three times in Romans chapter 1, the natural man then is without excuse. And when a society forges ahead despite being against God, God will give them over to continual wickedness. It's their wickedness. By the way, do you know what a wicked society begets? More wickedness. The further a society, I'll make a statement here, the further a society 
removes itself from the principles and moralities of the Word of God, note this please, the more primitive that society becomes. The further they move themselves, the more primitive they become. You want to know what the end result of this godless green stuff that exists today? This saving the planet kind of, you want to know what the end of it is? Primitive existence. Why? Because they've moved themselves from the nature's God, the God that made nature. That's not an accident, that's theology. We speak of these cultures, sometimes down in India, sometimes down in Brazil, and we call them primitive cultures. They've never been exposed to the Western world. You ever wondered how they became primitive? I would submit to you theologically, Somewhere da- back in the past, they rejected the natural revelation of God's Word. You take a close glance at that primitiveness because that will be the fountain of sin for our society. We'll be primitive. You, you, you know one of the marks of a primitive society? They mark their bodies and take off their clothes. That's the mark of a primitive society. Or an American beach on the 4th of July. A nation that has forgotten God. Notice a fourth thing, if you will, the folly of sin. The fact, the fault, the fountain, the folly of sin. What is the folly of this sin? Well, it's simply three things. Number one, it's the folly of failing to recognize that the divine God exists. If nature, and it is, is a natural revelation, the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I look at it, and I look at nature, and I look at all this order and arrangement, its sequence and seasons, and I say, oh, that's accidental. That's folly. I have denied the existence of the God that has created it. The second part of the folly is this. If God exists, he does. Since God exists, there must be a coming judgment. Because he would have justice. And that brings me to a third thing is this. There will be no excuse. He has revealed himself to me. When we speak about the folly of sin, it really has a a, a, a trinity of unholiness, if I can use the expression. You have to chase it all the way back. You deny the existence of God because if there's no God, there's no judgment. And therefore, I will die in my sins and it doesn't really matter. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Composting of the human body, if you will. Grand folly of sin. Note a fifth one. The filthiness of sin. As you can... Purvey through the scriptures, he's talking about the persecution of those that are good. They're workers of iniquity. I think too often in society and perhaps in the lives of Christians, we realize that sin so often looks good. It is tantalizing. By the way, it's meant to be that way. From 1 John chapter 2, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life are not the Father, 
but of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Sin is debaucherous. Sin is essence is filthiness. Proverbs chapter 14 tells us there is a way. There is a way. Man confides in his mind, imagines that there's a way that he will enjoy in this life. But he fails to realize that if that way opposes God and God's revelation, that is the way of judgment. I have great angst with Matthew chapter 7. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many be that find that way. What, what an awful tragedy. Teeming masses of individuals that see a broad way and be as though they are led by a blind falling off the precipice of all that is holy into the judgment of an almighty God. Why? Because sin at its core is filthy. It's despised in the very sight and the nostrils of the almighty God. And woe be to the man that must in his own heart reject the existence of a creator God so that his heart will fill itself with no excuse to oppose that God. Notice if you will a sixth thing. The fruit of sin. The fruit of sin. Draw your attention to verse number four. I've already alluded to this, this one, but we'll recap it for a moment. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge of eating up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. What happens when sin occurs? Greater sin will follow. You know, that's why it's so important as believers to keep short accounts in our fellowship and walk with God. Why? You let little things slip up. You let your eyes be tempted with wicked and evil. We had our couples conference some time ago and, and one of the lessons this online was, was on the sin of pornography. You know why that's such an important thing to be aware of and to put a keeper about your eyes? Because it leads to other evils. Long before David ever lay with Bathsheba, he looked upon her. That's the dangerous. Sin always begets more sin. It bears its equal fruit. Look at verse number 5. I'll give you the seventh fact, or uh, if you will, about sin. There's the fear. And to keep with the scriptures here, the shame of sin. There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God scattered the bones of him that had campused against thee. That's a marvelous phrase, God scattered the bones of him. That speaks a number of things, doesn't it? It speaks of a coming judgment destruction, the bones. I was a couple weeks ago uh, down at Ordination Council in Richmond, and after the fact I went down to Petersburg, and down in Petersburg is the largest geographic battlefield of the Civil War. It, it's, it's expansive, over 200,000 men were camped there for nine months. You can imagine how expansive it was. And there was no great sudden battle. It was just a ton of skirmishes as they moved hither and yon. And it basically concluded, and two weeks later, you have the surrender there at Appomattox. But there about the middle of that great engagement, some Pennsylvania coal miners attempted to dig a tunnel 
almost 100 yards under, under southern lines, and they filled it with four tons of black powder, and they detonated it. You know what happened when they detonated it? Nothing. So they had to send two Pennsylvania guys, volunteered to go back in that tunnel, refix the fuse that had went out, lit it, and then ran out and told the general, it's going to go. And it exploded. A great battle ensued. And several years after the war, people would go back to look at just this giant hole in the ground. That drew my attention. I'm thinking about these things, and, and the, the, the Federal Park there has a picture from 1867, I think it was, three years after the battle. Big hole, devastation of all the foliages around it, and here are ladies and all their finery and men and all their duds, and they're getting their pictures taken. And at the lower bottom corner, you know what was there? A skull, a human skull. You say, preacher, that's gross. It was leftover carnage. Scattered the bones of him. That detonation scattered the bones. When he's speaking of judgment that's going to come to evil, that's the mental picture that should be in our mind. That should be the fear and shame of sin in our life. And by the way, God is the same yesterday as he is today and will be forever. And this has been his dealings with evildoers. I remind you in 2 Kings chapter 18, this is exactly what happened with Hezekiah and Sennacherib. He scattered as in one night 185,000 Syrians died. He scattered the armies. And Sennacherib went back to his kingdom and his palace. And Persian history or Assyrian history tells us that he was assassinated by his own sons. Ignomy and defeat was his end. I think about Joshua, the kings of Canaan, Joshua chapter 10. I think of Judges chapter 7, Gideon and the Midianites, the scattering. I think of, John, uh, of Jonathan and the uh, Philistines over in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And prophetically this is what occurs in Luke chapter 23 and Matthew chapter 24 when the wicked will go out and cry upon the rocks that they fall upon them. Yet the mountains will not. But their judgment cometh. Fear and shame. Notice verse number 6. I'll give you a last thought, not so much about sin as it is the saint, the faith of the saint. Oh, that salvation of Israel will come up out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, Israel shall be glad. Their faith was looking, will be looking for a deliverer. You know, that's what the Messiah's name implies deliverance in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 his name was to be called Jesus why for he shall deliver his people from their sins hold your place over and look in Romans chapter 3 I'm nearly finished look at Romans chapter 3 this is the third place those verses the foolish said in his heart there is no understanding it's the third time God has recorded it. And the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, cites those passages of the 14th and the 53rd Psalm here. I'll take a moment. You want to get a, a, a good glimpse of how God sees sin and wickedness? Look in Romans chapter 3. There are, by my count, 13 indictments that God makes against the sons of Adam's race. 
Notice, if you will, in verse number 9. What then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Jews. Regard the Gentiles. They're both, verse number 9, under sin. No, in no wise, for we have been proved, or we have before proved, both Jew and Gentiles, that they are under sin. Iniquity. Since when, Paul? Since they were born. Always dating back to mom and daddy, Adam and Eve. Verse number 10, this is Psalm 14, 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Do you want to know the purpose of the Old Testament law? Verse number 19. To fully conclude the truths of verse 23, for all have sinned and come. The best you could hope for your child was that they would be closer to God's glory than you will be. But there'll be no human of their own ability that will ever match the necessary glory that is needed for eternal life. Note some of these charges. You could break them up and you could look at their character. He gives uh, six indictments about their character. He gives three indictments about their conversation. And he gives three more about their conduct. And then he gives you the baseline motive of why they are this way. Now I've read them quickly so I'll just point to them as quickly as I can. Notice, if you will, his character. He says, you want to see man's character? Verse number 10, none righteous, it's evil. He goes on in speaking of his character, he says he's spiritually ignorant. Verse number 11, he's gone out of the way. No desire in his heart to worship. No desire in his heart to please God. He's wicked. He is spiritually ignorant. That's why it's a dangerous thing in any church to seek to win the world by making church pleasing to them. The moment you have done that, you've undermined the holiness of a true God. And you have failed in the gospel that you seek to please, or seek to preach rather. Verse number 11, they've become unprofitable. They're untogether unprofitable. I might would look at that and say that they are rebellious. Unprofitable, you know what that means? Useless. He uses a similar word in chapter 11. He calls it reprobate, rejected. So I know that this is this isn't making you feel good about yourself. But let's keep reading. It gets better. You get down to verse number 12. He says they've gone out of the way, become unprofitable. Uh, there's none that doeth good. They have a wayward spirit, if you will. They're morally corrupt. Morally corrupt. Then he deals in verse number 13 with their conversation. Verse number 13, their throat is an opaline sepulcher. That's rough, isn't it? Speaking of this wise, I would speak that this, they are spiritually dead. Ephesians speaks of this, dead in our trespasses and sin. In verse number 13, they're deceitful. False witnesses, if you will. They're hateful. Verse number 14, they're full of cursing. 
Then you look at their conduct. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. They are murderous. I know it's not the third Sunday of January yet where we would do sanctity of life, but do you realize how poignant of a public conversation that is now? Everyone's speaking of it. I'm watching ads come through the mail. You got the people that are supposed to be for pro-life, if you will, now launching federal litigation on arguing on how soon we can kill the baby and it'd be all right. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse number 16, you want to know their conduct is destructive. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse number 17, they're, they're peaceless. They have no peace. But you want to know the ultimate motive that's given in verse number 18, and that takes us back to Psalm 53. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And why would there be? Society, specifically speaking of ours, God is just the one by whose name we take in vain. No knowledge leads to the diabolical destruction of a people, a society, and a person. But let me give you one piece of good news in Romans chapter 3. Look down, if you will, in verse number 28. Verse 24 first. Being justified freely by His, what? Grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Man's only hope to be delivered from the impending destruction that he has set himself against God is in fact the marvelous gift of Jesus Christ. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That didn't take much, does it? No, it's the free gift. I look into the God of heaven. I turn from the evil and wickedness of society, of my own personal heart, and I accept the true faith of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, God, the just, holy, sovereign God, is appeased with the propitiation. The passage is here in Romans chapter 3. The propitiation of His Son. That's the incense of the altar. His anger is satiated. His wrath is appeased. God, Jesus Christ, has paid that sin debt and those who have received are now freely justified and have access, Romans chapter 5, with God in heaven. Truly the foolish said in his heart, there is no God. And what a dangerous and pernicious life that will soon follow him. But to the child of God now and next year and in the next age to come, put their faith in Jesus Christ. He is alone their salvation. And that is what they look for in this life. I marvel at the Apostle Paul's word in Galatians chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the Faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mankind's only redemptive hope 
rest fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We sit back and seek to walk with Him and commune with Him and fellowship with Him and serve Him and all the while the opposition of the wicked come. And so the saint of God prays, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. If I can put it in a new thought, in a singular thought, Paul put it this way, Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand working. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.